Welcome to the Evangelizing Catholic Culture Podcast Show with your host, Father David Tickerhoof, T-O-R. Father David is a retired priest currently ministering in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at Our Lady Queen of Peace House of Evangelization. You can find the show notes for each episode on the podcast website, evangelizingcatholicculturepodcast.com. The teachings in this podcast are the thoughts and prayers of Father Tickerhoof and are based upon his good standing in the Catholic Church. And now, here's your host, Father David. To find the show notes for today's episode, visit evangelizingcatholicculturepodcast.com and look for the show Defining Catholic Culture, Episode 6. Good morning to everybody. This is Father David. We're beginning, uh, we're in the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, April 3rd, and I wish everybody a very, very uh, happy and blessed Easter. And we're going to talk about, in this first one here, we're going to talk about the definition of Catholic culture. It's going to be a little bit heavy or ponderous, and I'm going to uh, speak, try to speak slowly so that uh, you have time to sit, really think of the things that I'm presenting. May I begin? A possible definition of Catholic culture. In setting up a podcast entitled Evangelizing Catholic Culture, it's important to try and clarify uh, that some aspects attitudes and ideals of Catholic culture need to be re-evangelized. Most of us have been raised in a church that has overemphasized the institutional-slash-sacramental model of the church to the detriment of the other models, the servant model, the mystical communion model, the proclamation of the gospel models. Many members of the church were born and have been raised and possess a restricted idea of the nature of the church. The institutional model entails high levels of authority, organization, visibility, projects, and encountering Christ in the sacrament, and then, and make sure you get to church syndrome. So the next number of paragraphs are somewhat ponderous. In the following section, I've tried to present a blended model of the church in order to get a glimpse of what the church can be in a broader sense, to see briefly that the church, some of its operational methods and its cultural expressions really need to be evangelized. Sometimes new wine needs new wineskins, in order to manifest vintage quality. The approach that I present is an attempt to see that there is a real need to evangelize the Catholic Church in its internal operation and its expression in society of its immediate visible cultural format. Now, there are a good number of definitions for the word culture. The way I'm using the definition here in this sense is as culture is looked at as a way, quote, a way of life, 
unquote. What are some of the visible elements and components of a Catholic way of life? These elements would consist in specific things which describe what a Catholic way of life could really look like. First off, it would be a visible, organized, communal structure with legitimate authority which exists in our society and is visibly clear to others both within and outside of its visible reality. It would consist in a worldwide universal ethnic backgrounds. Its members would profess a clear set of doctrines based on the gospel way of life and have different roles in these endeavors. Some would be chosen as leaders and others would not. The use of authority would be based on the imitation of Jesus as a humble servant of the Father's mercy and love. Yet many would engage in various roles, works, and ministries. The bond would consist of a living faith in the person of Jesus Christ, the heart of which would be a triune spirituality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit a plenitude or fullness of splendid grace where individuals are drawn by the love of the Father who is manifested and revealed through the person of Jesus Christ, the splendor of the Father's glory, personal Lord and Savior. The relational life of its members would be celebrated in a sevenfold sacramental communal rites in which there would be opportunities for encountering the living God in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Its celebration would consist in the dynamic grace-filled worship. It, it would consist in individual personal relationships with God and a multiple series of devotions which would be a prayerful means of a loving spiritual growth and worship of the living God. Now, I'm going to use a big word here. There would be a mystical, which means a direct experience of the life of grace, a mystical, dynamic bond with God and one another in the spirit of the living God. The members of this body of Christ would be invited to exercise exercise a missionary zeal in order to invite and assist others in joining the group identified as church. The members of this community would have a clear vision of the revealed truth from God as a basis for their commitment and service. They would be required to reach out generously to others who are poor and broken, broken and in need of ministry and other types of mercy services. Those who grow into maturity would be called disciples of the Lord, humble servants of mercy, with the call to be missionary disciples of the Lord, who would bring a sacrificial, transforming love to one another 
and all other members of the human community where possible. Now, the heart of this broad notion of the life of the church would be the Paschal mystery. So what is the Paschal mystery? The compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church states that the Paschal mystery of Jesus is what comprises his passion, death, resurrection, and glorification, and it stands at the center of the Christian faith. Because God's saving plan was accomplished once for all by the redemptive death of his son, Jesus Christ. Pope Benedict XVI stated during the Second Vatican Council that the most important and central message of the Council was this, that the, quote, the Paschal mystery is at the center of what it is to be Christian and is therefore at the center of the Christian life, unquote. The wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament were but a prelude to the work of Christ the Lord in redeeming humankind and giving perfect glory to God. Jesus achieved his mission, giving him by the Father, given to him by the Father, principally by the paschal mystery of his blessed passion, resurrection from the dead, and the glorious ascension, whereby, quote, dying he destroyed our death, and rising he restored our life, unquote. For it was from the side of Christ as he slept the sleep of death upon the cross that there came forth the wondrous sacrament of the whole church. This is it quoted in uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium number 5, the numbers 10, 47, and 61. The, ca- the Catechism of the Catholic Church states that the Paschal mystery of Christ's cross and resurrection stands at the center of the good news that the apostles and the church following them are to proclaim to the world. God's saving plan was accomplished once for all by the redemptive death of his son, Jesus Christ, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 571. The Paschal mystery of Christ cannot remain only in the past, because by his death he destroyed death, and all that Christ is, and all that he did and suffered for humankind participates in the, quote, eternal now, the eternal now, as well as divine eternity in the future. And so transcends all times while being made intimately and personally and uniquely present in each specific period of time as well as in all time. The event of the cross and resurrection abides and draws everything towards life. This is quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1085. It also explains, quote, the Paschal mystery has two aspects. By his death, Christ liberates us from sin. And by his resurrection, he opens for us the way to a new life. 
This new life is above all the justification that restates, reinstates us in God's grace so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Justification consists in both victory over death caused by sin and a new participation in grace. This fact brings about the reality that in Christ we are truly sons and daughters of the Father and brothers and sisters to one another. Catholic Catholic, uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 654. So therefore, all human activity is to find its growth and purification in the Paschal Mystery. Christians believe that all human activity is to find its purification and perfection in the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man redeemed by Christ and made a new creation in the Holy Spirit can and must love the very things created by God in a spirit of thankfulness and reverence. He uses and enjoys them in a spirit of and freedom. He enters into true possession of the world and is one having nothing and possessing all things. For St. Paul tells us, for all things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Jesus reveals to us that God is love and the human perfection of all is the new commandment of love. In this truth is the transformation of all things, including the whole world and the very ordinary daily circumstances of life. Therefore, we share in the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus to whom all power in heaven and earth has been given. And he is at work in the hearts of all through the power of his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He awakens in us a longing for the world to come. He inspires and purifies and strengthens each one of us to have generous desires to make our life more human and to achieve this same goal for others. The the gifts of the Spirit are manifolds. He calls some to directly witness these longings for eternal fulfillment, and he calls others to dedicate themselves to the service of of their Mm -hmm. brothers and sisters here on earth. Yet he makes all free, so that by denying their inordinate love of self, and taking up all earth's resources into the life of humanity, all people, all persons may reach out to the future when humanity itself will become a beautiful, wonderful, splendid offering acceptable to God. This is stated in the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world, the liturgical volume for Lent, pages 31 to 32. Now I'd like to talk just briefly about the history of the grace of renewal and reform. I'm presenting here a selected summary of, of some of the work and power of the Spirit 
in the life of the Catholic Church over the last 100 years. And I'm doing this to provide a context for us to understand a little better the working of the grace of renewal and reform in our most recent period, this period of our life and time in the church. Pope Benedict XVI, in one of his writings, mentioned that the church will always need spiritual renewal and reform because of the human condition and the reality of sin. So now, Pope Leo XIII, who was elected pope in 1867, 1867, at the turn of the century in the late 1800s, he was concerned about the progressive spiritual movements alive in Europe and the young American nation. So he gave scholars in the church permission to carefully study how some of the more positive ideas could further a better understanding for Catholic men and women in regard to the practical application of the work of the Spirit in the areas of Scripture, liturgy, the liturgy rites and celebrations, the catechetical movements, and various other issues in the life and teaching of the Church. He was deeply motivated by an understanding that the church needed to go through a profound, profound spiritual renewal. Now, for 50 years after that, most of this activity unfolded quietly in the areas of study. This was the time the world was caught up in the devastating period of World War I and World War II. In the 1950s, many of the church's leaders realized that some type of spiritual renewal and reform was most necessary in order to lead the church forward in adapting to the developments in the modern world, such as the developments emerging after the turmoil of the two world wars, uh, advances in the Industrial Re Revolution, uh, the many new discoveries in the sciences, and the various movements of secularization, some that were detrimental and not helpful at all to the life and growth of the church. All through the first half of the 20th century, many leaders in the church could see that the Lord was preparing for some kind of a great spiritual enterprise which was sorely needed. The beloved Pope John XXIII was elected to the papacy in 1958. He was a jovial, relational leader and open to the work of the Holy Spirit. He proclaimed a surprising worldwide ecumenical council which began in 1961 and ended in 1965. He died in the middle years of this Second Vatican Council and Pope Paul VI was elected to bring the council to conclusion and then pass through the many changes necessary in light of the pastoral documents and proposals developed in its four years of preparation. And he was chosen to responsibly guide the implementation after its conclusion. In and of itself, the Council was a monumental achievement and an obvious work of divine grace. However, as central and long-standing as this reform will, would be and will be in the church, 
It was by no means the only work and activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and in other Christian denominations as well. Also, in the life of the church in the first half of the 20th century, under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, a number of spiritual and gospel evangelical movements of a pious nature were developing. Some of these were focused on achieving personal holiness, and others aimed more at catechetical and doctrinal development of human services and mercy work. However, at the conclusion of the Council, a surge, now that, that conclusion was 1965, a surge of the empowering activity of the Holy Spirit also came to the fore in a notable fashion. For example, the Crucio movement, which began in Spain and quickly moved to the United States and other parts of the world. Also the Antioch movement for young people, uh, Focolari and others. However, the one that made the most impact in the United States and worldwide in the Catholic Church was the charismatic renewal. This movement leads participants to experience a refreshing empowerment of the grace of the Holy Spirit, along with the experience and use of the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. Once this new, quote, new anointing, end quote, of the Spirit is experienced, it begins a supernatural and a human and natural process which significantly affects one's personal relationship with the Lord in a very positive, personal, and loving way. This effectiveness in grace spreads gradually to all the dimensions of one's spiritual life, and if, one, if a person is faithful in developing a life of prayer, this actualizing grace positively affects the personal growth of Christian holiness and human maturity in all the areas of one's human endeavors. However, this, as you may know, this consistency is not always the case. It is like many other opportunities of growth. If one does not foster and focus on a process of conversion and growth in personal holiness and generous service of others, it can easily lose its vitality. Initially, receiving this empowerment should lead one to a deeper experience of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and to a more attentive awareness of the presence and operation of the Holy Spirit in one's life. For many over the last 50-some years, this has been the case. In fact, this refreshing experience of the Holy Spirit has generated a good number of ministries, special communities, and other forms of service and mercy work in the life of the church. This podcast is presented to provide a context to consider more specific areas in the life of the church which many need which may need which many need some attention about. So concluding this presentation, I was laying the foundation and context for what has happened in the renewal of the church's grace of renewal and the renewal and reform in the church from the late 1800s to now, clear up to this time. 
So we bring this to conclusion. Let us pray for a deeper outpouring of the love of God in the hearts of all people. So let us pray. Lord Jesus, to know you is eternal life. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I love you and I place my trust in you. I am sorry for all of my sins and for withholding myself in any way from you. Please forgive me as you bring healing to my life and heal any pain I have caused others. I forgive anyone who has hurt me and I ask you to bless them. In your name, Jesus, I renounce anything in my life that is not of you that I have welcomed into my mind and heart. Wash me in mercy and fill me with your precious blood and the Holy Spirit. Father, all of my need for love and affection is found in your embrace. May I never leave my home in your heart again. By your grace and most intimate love, I resolve to remain in your shelter and abide in your shade where you restore to me the tremendous joy of salvation. And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This prayer was developed by Father John Horn and others that he works with at the seminary in in, in Boughton Boughton Beach, uh, Florida. May God bless you. The opinions on this broadcast are those of Father Tickerhoof. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast, and please share this podcast with a friend. And to contact Father David, email him at frdavidjt at gmail.com. And be sure to leave Father a star rating on any podcast app. You can find more information about Father David on evangelizingcatholicculturepodcast.com.